One of the clear purposes concerning why God, if you think about it in the whole Old Testament, had this long story with his people in the Old Testament as well. First and foremost, it was always to set everything up for the coming of the needed Messiah for Jesus. But concerning us, one of the main reasons the whole Old Testament story exists is to also show us who we are, who we are and what we truly deserve. And we need to know that because the truth is, let's be honest, we can, we can read about the people in the Old Testament and how they were miraculously delivered out of Egypt and shown miracles by God and more, and yet then still complained and rebelled against God. And we may pridefully kind of think, wow, they're just so terrible. <laughs> but church, the reality is, as you see made clear in the teachings of the New Testament, that we're supposed to read about them and see that we're no different than them on our own. And that if we were in their shoes back in the time period in which they lived, we'd almost certainly have joined them in their complaining and rebellion and just selfishness against God. And that's part of the reason why this passage you just heard it read in Numbers 21 is so helpful concerning the gospel. The gospel, because concerning this story, so we're back in the Old Testament in this series of understanding the gospel where we're going Old Testament, New Testament, week by week, back and forth to see that God has always lovingly rescued his people by grace through faith. And knowing that, as for why we're going over this passage in Numbers 21, it's because, well, this event might have taken place around 3,000 years ago, so it's a long time, but still, again, we should realize and realize, we should read this and realize that apart from Christ, what we just read really is us. And this is basically what we deserve. But then also, we'll see that what God then does in this story is a great display of grace as well. And it's even a stunning picture of the gospel. So that's where we are in Numbers 21. But now, before we even dive into this passage, quickly though, as for our outline for how we're going to go through God's word here together this morning. So it's pretty typical for us. We're going to have three sections together this morning. But as for what we'll see in those three sections, basically what we're going to do is we're first going to spend our first two sections covering this story itself. And then though, we're actually going to spend our last section jumping to the New Testament the New Testament, or more specifically, if this is helpful to you. In our three sections, we're first going to be in this passage in verses 4 through 7. We'll see the situation here and God's initial response and the people's response, which will then second will lead us to actually finish this story in verses 8 and 9, where we'll see what God, God did towards the people with his mercy with that copper snake or bronze serpent. And all that will be the majority of our time, but all that then will set us up for our third and last section, where again, we will go to the New Testament, to a time where Jesus clearly referenced this story. Because it's helpful and it's amazing to see what Jesus said about all this. So, and so that's where we're going, church. First, two sections on this story, and then one section in the New Testament from Jesus, all with the goal of seeing the one true gospel. But all said, let's just dive in and begin our first section then, church. And here again, we're going to be in verses 4 through 7 of Numbers 21. We're going to see the situation, God's initial response, and the people's response. Or to say it another way, all of this is set up for what God does later in the story with the copper snake. And for this, I do think the easiest thing for us is just to go verse by verse, and we'll talk about it, and then we'll apply it to ourselves. And so let's just start in verse 4. Look down at your Bibles, verse 4. The narrative in God's word begins like this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people 
became impatient on the way. And so to understand that verse, we first just briefly need to understand the context of those travel details there in verse 1. And so in short, what's going on here is that the Israelites are continuing to wander around, right? Like they do a lot in the first five books of the Bible. But specifically, they're now traveling by the way of the Red Sea, to the way of the Red Sea, going around Edom. And mainly what you and I need to know on that is that in basic, that was like going backwards to them. And you can perhaps see that in that it says that they're going the way to the Red Sea again. That's the famous Red Sea. But more importantly here actually is that they're going around the land of Edom. And in short, they're doing that because a chapter earlier in Numbers 20, Moses asked the people of Edom if the Israelites could go through. But as Numbers 20, 20 says, quote, But Edom said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against the Israelites with a large army and with a strong force. And so that's what just happened. And therefore Moses, it seems wisely, decided to not respond to Edom with warfare. But instead he chose to go around Edom. Even though it was sort of a backwards route. And so anyway, so that's where we are here in verse 4. And that matters because, think about it. So that's the context. And Moses is trying to be a wise leader. And yet, once again, what happens though with the people? Well, at the end of verse 4, quote, And the people became impatient on the way. And with that context understood, you can kind of see that impatience does sort of make sense. But it's still not right. But even more so, it's not just not right. But more important in this story and for you and me, is that sure, if they just thought that it was maybe a little unfortunate that it was taking a little more time, that might be okay. But instead of that, what we're going to see is that this impatience led to even worse things. To intense complaining and rebellion in their hearts coming up. And for you and me on that, let's just be really clear. It's often little things like impatience in our hearts, right? Which leads to bigger issues as well. But continue on, let's just see what happens. So the people become impatient, which leads to this now in verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. So here's where we see their impatience eventually takes on a whole nother level. Because first you can see the people here speak up not just against Moses but against God and Moses. And this is a common negative thing for them. They complain against Moses, the leader God has given them, and they complain against God. They often go hand in hand. And then what do they say in their complaint? Well, here's where it gets interesting because we'd expect them to talk about their impatience of going around Edom, right? But they don't. Instead, their first complaint is, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And that's dramatic sounding, and it is, but most important on that is, in short, if you think about it, that question above all reveals their deep distrust, not only in Moses, but also in God, right? Their deep distrust, because think about it, they've experienced the miraculous exodus by God. They've seen what God can do. He's provided for them over and over, and yet, even with all of that, they complain and they say that he really must have brought them out to die. And that's just their first complaint here because then finally and biggest of all on this verse actually is that last thing they say, that last complaint. And that's quote, for there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. And on that to begin, let's be clear, the idea that there's no food and no water is just not true. 
Because remember, concerning food, God miraculously every single day gave them this manna from heaven. And then concerning water, literally in the previous chapter, God made water come out of a rock. <laughs> right? Showing that he can give them water from anywhere. And so this, there's no food and no water is just not true. But still, the worst thing here actually isn't even that claim. Instead, it's those last words that they say, quote, and we loathe this worthless food. And now why is that the worst? Well, because on the face of it, right, they're here now just complaining against the manna itself, and that's true. But why is that so bad? Well, because just consider the manna wasn't just random food. Instead, manna was God's incredibly miraculous and continually miraculous provision for these people, proving to them that he cares for them, that he'll provide for them exactly what they need each and every day. And yet, how do they feel about all that? Well, apparently they loathe it. And they even go so far to tell God that his miraculous provision of bread from heaven is worthless to them. You feel the weight of that? That's a big deal. And that's why God responds the way he does in verse 6. So look there now, verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And so now that might sound harsh to us, but I do think the best way to explain any judgment from God like that is to come to grips first with the fact that most people who believe in God or any sort of God agree Right, with the fact that because God sees everything and because he's totally just and because real wrongs are wrong, there is going to be some sort of final judgment at the end of everything, right? And in short, most people kind of basically agree with that because we know that God should judge wrongs and he should make things right. And so we get that. And why does that then matter concerning judgments like this? Well, because in short, if that's true, then also in the Bible, what happens is that sometimes if God decides, and he has every right to do this, if God decides to bring part of that final judgment into the present, right, he can do so. Meaning he can, he can wait to judge at the final judgment, and he usually does on things, but he also can judge in our timeline. And we see that, for example, in the Bible, with the flood in Genesis, which is some God, Sodom and Gomorrah. It actually happens a couple times in the book of Acts, and we see that in a way here. Because on verse 6, let's just be really clear, it's not God who's at fault here. Right? The people are really rebelling. They're dishonoring God and they're sinning. And so as the perfect God, 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 perfect judge, God just shows them the result of their sin here. And the result of sin is that it deserves death. But now as for how that death comes about, it is unique here in this story because God doesn't have them just die right away, nor does he use something more typical like an army who comes against these people. Instead, he uses serpents. Right, and quickly on these serpents, they're called fiery serpents because maybe they looked reddish, but also probably because of their venom because when they bit, they probably produced a fiery, sension, uh, fiery sensation because that word fiery here is related to the idea of to burn. But anyway, so that's God's judgment in verse 6. And many people do die, which finally on this section leads to verse 7. So look there now, verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents for us, from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So now this is the people's response. And concerning how to interpret this, honestly, we don't know if the people were genuinely and humbly repentant here or if they really didn't care that much about God still, but they just didn't want to die. 
Because just, just so you know, in the Old Testament, we know this language can be used of genuine repentance, but then also we know this sort of language can be used like Pharaoh in the plague, if you know that story. This language can be used just because someone wants God's judgments to stop. Right, and so it really could be either, and it's probably a mixture of both in this big group of people here. But either way, so that's the way they respond. And then finally, they finish here in this section by asking Moses to pray for them. And on that, concerning Moses, just think about it. He could have said, no, you, you deserve this. Because <laughs> they did. But being the good and loving leader, he was not perfect. Because just so you know, Moses messed up big in the previous chapter. And so he was not a perfect leader, but he did love the people. And so this first section of ours ends with the people experiencing the consequences of their sins and Moses praying for them. So all that said, that's our first section and the setup for what's about to happen. And quickly though, applying that to you and me, again as we opened it with, we should feel, brothers and sisters, that if you and I were them apart from Christ, we would have joined right in with them with their impatience and complaining and ultimately distrust and rebellion. And specifically to see that, I do think that perhaps the easiest connection for you and I to make with these people 3,000 years ago is to think just a little more about this reality of complaining. Right? Of complaining. Because their complaining and our complaining really does reveal a lot more about their hearts and our hearts than we sometimes think. And especially because we're in this series on the gospel, I think it's good for us to take a minute and really consider this. Because think about it, when we think about why we need the gospel and our sin against God and our spiritual deadness, like we talked about last week, we usually think of big truths like our big sins in our lives or about things like how we don't love God on our own and things like that. And let's be clear, that's good to think about because all of those things are true. But do you know what in the Old Testament is often a recurring symptom that at first doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but when dug further into, it does really show the brokenness of their hearts and of our hearts? Well, again, it is complaining. Complaining. And why? Well, because of what we see kind of talked about here. And that's that complaining is not just about complaining. Rather, complaining is more of a symptom that reveals a much deeper disease. And, and in brief, that disease is our self-focus, it's our discontentment, and even bigger, it's our really not trusting God. Because we know that God probably could change things, and so complaining is usually an attack on him and his ruling of our lives. And then finally, consider complaining also is usually a symptom of some self-righteousness as well. Because in complaining, we not only don't trust God, but then we subtly kind of think, and if I had control, I'd do a lot better. And so church, complaining is a big deal. And again, it's not just because of some command that says, do not complain. Rather, it's because complaining really does reveal something so broken in our hearts. And that's, that's what we see here in the Old Testament. And we should notice that in our hearts as well whenever we complain. And so as Christians, because of that, let's always fight against any complaining, of course. But then also, as we're going to see in this story, whenever we feel complaining, church, let's confess it and then let's, let's let it lead us to the gospel of Jesus as well. Let's let our complaining lead us to the antidote of our disease in Jesus. So again, that's verses 4 and seven through 7. It's our first section, which now leads us to our second. And here, again, now we're actually going to finish the story in verses 8 and 9 and see what God mercifully did for them with this copper snake. 
And on this, as I said earlier, so verses four through seven are sort of a big setup for these two verses here. And yet what's so interesting about this story is honestly, verses eight and nine are strange. <laughs> and they're even a little brief. And quickly, I do think that's, that's intentional because this is a weird ending here. And I think it was supposed to make the people who went through this back then, and it's supposed to make us today kind of wonder, wonder what in the world is going on here, God? But more on that in a minute. But first, let's just read these verses and see what happened. Then we'll talk about them. So that's the setup. The people are actually getting bit by fiery serpents and many of them are dying. Moses just prayed for them, which leads to this, both verses eight and nine. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So, so let's break that down. So in response to the fiery serpents that God sent to punish the people, God now tells Moses first to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And we know in verse 9 that this is a bronze serpent, or I personally think it's better translated as copper serpent, or as we usually just say a copper snake. But anyway, so that's what... God tells Moses to do. And then he tells Moses that this snake is to be the antidote to anyone who's been bitten. And that's fascinating because just remember, it is being bit by these serpents is God's punishment that he originally sent. And so God is the one who sent the fiery serpents to bite in the first place. And now here we see that this copper snake is God's antidote to his own punishment. And then finally here on all this, what does God tell Moses the people are to do? Well, simply stated, it's that they just see the serpent on a pole, and if they look on it, they live. That's it. Or as verse 9 says really clearly, they are to look at the bronze serpent and live. It's that simple. They look, they live. And so church, really, that's, that's this section, and the story ends there. And on all that, as I mentioned a minute ago, just hearing that and somewhat just breaking that down, now I hope you're starting to see how strange that is from God. How strange. Because I know for some of us, we maybe are familiar with the Bible and so we, we know this story. And for us as Christians, we might know, of course, where this story is pointing. But for a few minutes, I just encourage all of us to actually not jump to that yet. Instead, just imagine being these people back then who were actually going through this serpent plague. Or imagine never hearing this before and coming across this in God's word. Because again, if we could do that, I think we'd feel how strange, how really weird this is. Meaning again, we would read this and wonder, what in the world, God? Why are you doing this like this? <laughs> and, and quickly, just to make us all feel that a little bit more, let's actually probe into four strange things that are here. Four strange things, or, or four topics or questions that we probably would ask if we were the people back then, if we were reading this for the first time. Four strange things. First is again, just noticing how short the final part of this story is how short. Now, that isn't a huge deal in itself, but it does perhaps point us to the fact that God might be doing something unique here. And so that's sort of strange. But then second, and much bigger than that, is the fact that, let's be really clear, this is the Lord God here who is asking Moses to make a bronze serpent as a means to deliver his people. Meaning God literally just told Moses to make a snake for their salvation. <laughs> and just hearing that, I hope you see how unexpected that is from the Lord God. And I say that because if we know one 
big thing about God, especially in the Old Testament, especially like in the Ten Commandments, what is it? Well, well, rightly so, it's that he's a God against idolatry. He is the only God. He's the only Savior. In fact, the first two commandments are about this, right? No other gods and no images. And not only that, but if you know the Old Testament, the first big sin of the people of Israel is what do they do? Well, they decide to make themselves a golden calf, meaning they make a cow out of metal. And yet here, God now is telling Moses to make a bronze serpent as a means to deliver the people. Just like you'd make an idol. And now to be clear, this isn't an idol. God is not sinning. He's not asking Moses to sin. But still, church, we should feel how strange that is. But that's not even all that's here. Because now third, again, we know this, but this also isn't just any animal that he's told to make. But it's a serpent. It's a snake. And that's now even stranger because snakes in the Old Testament weren't respected animals, nor were they just even neutral animals. Instead, snakes were the very opposite. Snakes represented evil and sin. And we know that because, as you probably know, in the beginning of the Bible, in the garden, in the fall, the devil takes the form of a snake. And then in Leviticus, what happens when God wants to represent sin? He talks about snakes. And so third, that's strange because now Moses is told to make, almost like an idol, not just any animal, but a snake as a means to save God's people. Which finally, as for our fourth and last probing thing here that's strange... This is now just finally considering. So God does all of that. But just think about it. This all becomes weirder when we just step back for a second and realize that God could have ended this plague in any other way he wanted. (laughs) Meaning he didn't need to do this. And this is crucial to realize because in the Old Testament, God doesn't only punish his people like this here. He does in other places, but basically every other time he does so, he either just unilaterally stops the plagues or he sometimes uses natural events or other people. And he could have done any of those things here. Or as one commentator I read this week put it, we should read this and know that God did not need to do this and sort of ask, quote, why did not God use a miracle without resort to a potentially misleading symbol? Meaning God delivering his people by Moses, making a copper snake to be lifted up on a pole. (laughs) Just could be so misunderstood. It might even seem to promote idolatry and even elevate sin. And so all that said, what in the world is going on? And well, before we actually even answer that, let's just take a second and be so clear that for these people in the story back then, it's possible that maybe and probably they had questions like that. But for them, just think about it, more than mainly questions, they just needed this. (laughs) They needed this. And for you and me, I think we first need to realize that because they were literally being bitten by and dying because of fiery serpents. And so I'm sure Moses and perhaps the people had some questions about what in the world God was doing. But above all, what were they doing? Well, they were embracing this. (laughs) They were probably doing whatever it took to go and see and look at this copper snake. And, and just quickly, I bring that up because I love that because that in itself, uh, in itself, I hope you know, in some ways is such a picture of the Old Testament compared to the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, in many ways, it's hinted at the gospel and salvation. They're revealed, but there's a lot of weird things, right? That might bring up a lot of questions. But above all, back then, back then, for any people who were saved, they just realized that they needed salvation and they listened to God and, t- and, and whatever he said. That's what they did, or that's what they were supposed to do. 
But still, again, the question is for us, but what is this all about, right? What's this story? What's up with this copper snake and this pole, which could be so misunderstood to promote idolatry and even exalt sin? Why do this, God? And for that, now with Numbers 21 fully covered, now let's, in our third and last section, finally turn to the New Testament, to the New Testament. And in this New Testament passage we're going to will actually be in the immediate context of the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. And so for this, for our third and last section, we're going to be in John 3, 9 through 16. John 3, 9 through 16. Just so you know, we will not be in Numbers 21 again. So I encourage you, please turn with us to John 3, 9 through 16. If you're using a pew Bible, it should be on page 888. 888. John 3, 9 through 16. And here again, what we're doing in our third section is we're now seeing what Jesus said about that whole story we just covered. And as you'll see, what he says here about Numbers 21 in some ways is pretty short, but it's also fascinating and, help, and helpful. And it sheds a bright, stunning light on what God was always doing in Numbers 21 and on the gospel. And so I hope you're in John 3, 9 through 16. We're really going to be focusing only on verses 14 through 16, but I want us to read all of 9 through 16 for the larger context. And so where we are, just so you know, is Jesus here is talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus. And in that conversation, Jesus says this, verses 9 through 16. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So you can see it. See it. Jesus mentions the exact story from Numbers 21 and verse 14. Verse 14, when he says, quote, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. We know that's the story from Numbers 21 because that's the only time Moses lifts up a serpent in the wilderness like that. So that's Numbers 21. And therefore, with Jesus referencing that, well, the question then becomes, Okay, well, what then is Jesus saying? What do we now see about that strange story finally here from our Lord God and Savior himself? And the answer to that here is now where it all comes together. All comes together. More time could be spent on this, but think about it. So God had this strange story happen in the Old Testament, in history. Now Jesus here in history references it. And when he does so, we see at least five truths, five truths that we now really know that this story was always about. Five gospel truths. And let's be clear. These are five gospel truths that don't just happen to randomly correspond to the gospel. But in the way that Jesus references this story here, these are five things that Numbers 21 was always foreshadowing about the gospel. It's amazing. Let's get into them. Five gospel truths because of what Jesus says. Number one, notice the main thing that Jesus does so clearly here, and this is stunning, is he identifies himself with the lifted up copper snake. He identifies himself with the lifted up copper snake. And I know we're used to hearing that, but this is huge. Because remember, in Numbers 21, the snake could seemingly almost be like an idol, right? Something that could perhaps take the place of God and compete with God. And moreover, the snake in itself could look so evil and almost as representing sin itself. 
But now we see all that was because that was always this strange and yet complex and beautiful picture of Jesus. Of Jesus. Because quickly, think about it. First, the snake in Numbers 21 wasn't an idol, but man, it almost seemed close to looking like one. And why? Well, because God really wanted this snake to represent the savior and mediator who would come between God and man, who was the son of God and even God himself. And then think about it, we now also now know why this was a snake, a serpent, an animal that represents sin. And why? Well, not because the Savior and mediator himself would be sinful, but because salvation would come as he literally would take the sins of his people upon himself. And whereas the Bible says elsewhere, quote, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, it's incredible. It's so intentional by God. Because consider, in Numbers 21, God initially sent serpents to bite the people, right? which is the punishment their sin deserved. So that made sense. But then God weirdly put a serpent on a pole for their deliverance from those same sins. And why? Well, amazingly, now we know it. It was to always show that they did deserve the punishment of the serpents due to their sin. But also one day, a savior who would come, would come, who would take their sin and become the serpent for them, for us. He'd become sin for us and take our sins so that we cannot be bit by the serpent and die, but instead look on him and live. But then that's still not even all about Jesus being the snake here. Because then, now remember that this snake was, was copper, meaning it probably had a brownish, reddish hue to it. And that's why I personally prefer copper here rather than bronze or brass. But this is just another amazing thing about Jesus here being the snake because that means literally in history, in Numbers 21, they probably were look, looking upon this reddish-hued snake for salvation. And now we know that might represent Jesus and his blood, which then finally and most obviously remember, the snake was also lifted up on a pole. <laughs> And amazingly, Jesus, while being that reddish huge serpent, taking the sins of his people, he was lifted up on the pole as well, of course, on the cross. And so again, church, the point is, Jesus knows all that. And that's why stunningly, he basically says, do you not see it, Nicodemus? On the cross, I will become that serpent. It's beautiful, isn't it? And so that's the first and main gospel truth here. Jesus becomes the copper snake. But now more briefly moving on and continu continuing to see the gospel here. Number two, now just consider how Jesus doesn't merely compare himself to the serpent here, but for the people, Jesus takes how the Israelites just looked at the serpent for deliverance and he says, quote, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And that's significant because we first see there actually the situation we're in, right? The situation, meaning Jesus is saying to us, sure, we know we're not being bit by serpents, literally like the people were in Numbers 21. But more important is that you and I don't have eternal life on our own. That's the situation we're in. Or as John 3.16 says, we deserve to eternally perish. And so we see that, but then also we see the antidote to that here as well. And it's, and it's just like the Israelites in Numbers 21 weren't to earn their way to God or make up for their sins or anything like that, but they were to just look and live. So it is for us. But specifically now we know that looking and living means believing in Jesus and living. 
And so that's the second gospel truth, which now, continuing on, stick with us, leads to gospel truth number three. And this is now, notice, this is interesting, Jesus actually adds something here that technically wasn't in Numbers 21, but builds upon it and takes it to another level. And I say that because, remember, in Numbers 21, a big thing that we said was that technically God didn't need to do that with the copper snake to remove the serpents from the people. Because theoretically, God could have in history removed those serpents in the same exact way as he brought them. But notice what Jesus adds here in verse 14 is in one word, even a deeper truth, a truth about justice in the gospel. And this connects to Numbers 21 because remember, the people in history, they deserved punishment. And so the question we might have is actually, so how could they not receive their punishment? Or for you and me, how can we as sinners not receive the proper punishment from God that we deserve? And the answer to that, Jesus is so intentional. He adds the one word in verse 14, quote, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. <coughs> must. And that's, that's huge. And it's a huge part of the one true gospel because you might be sitting there and thinking, why couldn't God just forgive us without Jesus? Maybe he could do so, but it's not true. Because in the gospel, injustice, if any of their sins from Numbers 21 are to be given, forgiven, and if any of our sins are to really be dealt with and forgiven, Jesus must be that lifted up copper snake in our place. And so he was. And then, quickest of all, brings us to gospel truth number four here. And this is now just seeing that Jesus talks about who can get in on this, right? Who can get in on this? And that's seen in that phrase that whoever believes in him, or technically that all who believe in him in verse 15. That's very similar to right to John 3, 16. And that now matters because we're all like the people from Numbers 21. We all deserve God's punishment, but now all or anyone from anywhere can look upon this snake and receive eternal life. And as you and I know, that's the gospel, but then finally, there's one last truth, one gospel truth, number five, from Jesus here. This actually comes from verse 16, meaning John 3, 16. Because finally, notice, the famous John 3, 16 actually starts with the word for, or because. And the reason for that is, and I don't know if you ever knew this, but literally and literarily, John 3.16 is actually a reason for why Jesus fulfills Numbers 21. You see that? So Jesus becomes the copper snake from Numbers 21, giving eternal life to whoever, verses 14 and 15. But why? Well, for because God so loved the world that he gave his only son his son, to become the copper snake. <laughs> it's incredible. And church, that's then the fifth thing here on the gospel. Why God do all this? Why this story from Numbers 21? Why tell Moses to make a copper snake? Why make it simply about looking and living? What's going on? Well, it was always to point us to Jesus. It was always to point us to the gospel. But still, why even do the gospel, God? It's a good question to ask. Why even do the gospel, well, the answer is because God loves the world. <laughs> that is the foundational reality here. We're the sinners. We deserve the right judgment. But God loved and he loves the world. And so out of love, God planned for all of this. He foreshadowed all of this. And then he sent Jesus to be that lifted up sin-bearing snake <laughs> for the people in Numbers 21, for us, and for the whole world. And so that's our passage in Numbers 21. That's what Jesus says about a church. And just so you know, 
As for our passage next week, as we're going to go back to the New Testament, we're actually going to spend all of our time on John 3.16 through verse 21 here, seeing the context and the gospel of that whole paragraph beginning in John 3.16. So you can come back next week for that. But anyway, so again, that is Numbers 21 this week. And I hope you see it is a stunning display of the gospel in the Old Testament. Which finally, as we close, just briefly, just leads to one last thing on this. Three more minutes and we are done. One last thing. And to be honest... I say this for last because of everything I came across this week. It is this final thing, this final connection to the gospel that struck me the most. And so I just personally want to save it for last. And this applies to Jesus, to us, and us embracing the gospel. And so as for what I'm talking about, so finally, as for what's so amazing about Numbers 21, it's remember, to start, so remember, what actually in sin, what sin sets off that whole story? Well, if you recall, remember, it was the people were grumbling about food, right, about food. And also remember, it wasn't just grumbling about food in general, but very importantly, they were rejecting God's manna he gave them from heaven. And now why is that significant? Well, because first, as we already talked about back in Numbers, the manna represented God's love and provision and grace. It was this miraculous gift to them. And so them rejecting that was a big deal, but that's not even everything. Because now, and finally for this morning, guess who in the New Testament is actually even said to be the fulfillment of the manna as well. It's Jesus. Jesus, in fact, Jesus himself makes this exact point in John chapter 6, where in a discussion with the people back then, specifically about Moses and the manna from the Old Testament, Jesus says this about the manna, quote, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. That's what Jesus means when he says that. He's the true manna. And now, though, you still may wonder, okay, so what does that really have to do with Numbers 21? Well, because now, just bringing that all together, think about it. That finally means that Numbers 21 is an even clearer picture of the gospel. Because think about this. So we are all like the people from Numbers 21 naturally, complaining, impatient, distrusting God, and more. But essentially, why is that? Well, it's because we don't want God in his ways. Naturally, right? They didn't, they didn't want God and his ways and his man in the Old Testament. And we don't want God and his heavenly bread. Meaning, we all naturally reject Jesus. But what's God's response to that? What's Jesus' response to being the rejected one? What's the gospel? Well, listen up, church. The gospel is that the rejected manna becomes the copper snake. The gospel is that the one who is rejected and complained against, he, despite being rejected, he loves us. And so he comes and suffers to become our solution by taking our sin upon himself. I want to say one last way. The gospel is that you and I reject God and his bread, and so we rightly deserve the serpents. But God comes and becomes the serpent for us so that we can forever actually enjoy him as bread. I mean, that, that's, that's the gospel. And so finally, I do pray for all of us in here that we personally know that and believe that and find it beautiful because this is really too great to reject. It's too wonderful to make up. And even it's too much about God's grace and his love to then leave here and think that we have to go do enough good or earn this or deserve this from God. Instead, this is the truth of who we are on our own, yes, but the gospel is this is who our God is. This is who our Jesus is. He really became that copper snake for us. He suffered for us, and all we do is look and live. 
And so one last time, just make sure we've each in here personally done that. Let's turn our eyes upon Jesus, right, for our hope, forgiveness, and salvation. Let's keep loving Jesus because of what he did. And then finally, because of how good our Savior is towards us, let's continue to live for him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.